We're jumping back into our series this morning through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Today we find ourselves in chapter 4, so I'd invite you to turn there with me if you have your Bibles with you, or flip open the app on your phone, either way, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll look at verses 1 through 6, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Let me read this. Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Now Paul, if you remember, has had his hands full with this church in Corinth. And he had actually been experiencing some personal attacks in Corinth, namely that his ministry was weak, failing, that he was uh, dishonest, that he was essentially corrupting God's word uh, and was basically hindering the preaching of the gospel. These were things that people were saying about Paul. Ministry comes with challenges, and no one knew this more than Paul. There's always opposition, and yet he didn't lose heart, tells us in verse 1. He didn't lose focus on what's really important, on uh, the work he was doing, what he was trying to accomplish, and why, why he was doing the work he was doing, even when it was difficult. He had an endurance about him, a healthy kind of stubbornness. He wasn't going to give up, he wasn't going to lose heart. Why? It's because he saw something glorious. Paul had been utterly captivated by something infinitely glorious, something so incredible and real and true that nothing could stop him. No amount of opposition could uh, damper what he was trying to do. No amount of slander he knew the ministry that he had was not his own. It was a gift. It was a gift from God, and he models for us what it looks like to persevere. And there's a lot we could explore in this passage this morning, but I'd like to highlight three things we can learn from Paul, three principles, three commitments that, that we must make. And we can learn from Paul as he persevered through ministry in staying the course. Three things we must have if we want to do the same. So, 
First, we, we must cherish God's word. Secondly, recognize spiritual blindness. And thirdly, identify with Christ. Those three things. Cherish God's word, recognize spiritual blindness, and identify with Christ. So one, two, three. So first, verses one and two, Paul isn't losing heart. He ministers with heart. And as he does that, he's got this resolve, and he renounces some things. He rejects them. He renounces disgraceful, underhanded ways, literally the hidden things of shame. In other words, things that uh, Paul rejects all deceit, things that people do, but only undercover, and with shame if exposed. Specifically, Paul refuses to practice cunning. Practicing cunning means, basically, to use any device, any trickery, in order to get the results you want. Manipulation, in other words. The ends justify the means, regardless of the means employed. Paul uses that same word, cunning, later on in chapter 11. And he uses it to describe what the serpent was doing when, when it deceived Eve in the garden. Paul wants none of it. Nor did Paul tamper with God's word, which is what I'd like to explore a bit more first. The temptation to tamper with God's word is stronger today than ever. Paul won't tamper with God's word. Why not? Because of what it is. If you see God's word for what it is, the way Paul saw God's word, then you won't tamper with it either. You'll, you won't have the right to. It's not something to take lightly. It's not something to be flippant with. We don't have the liberty to shape it any which way we want. God's word is to be cherished, not messed with. It's to be held in such high regard and with such care that you refuse to mess with it. But people tamper with God's word all the time. We see this. People mess with it. People use it as a means to an end. Some kind of... Uh, way to, to use it in order to support an agenda, to make it say something it does not say. This tendency to do this, as well as its opposite, so the tendency to manipulate, to tamper, as well as the uh, commitment to cherish, both those things, they flow from one important concept, and that is authority. Authority. For the people of God, for the church, the ultimate foundation, source, and standard of truth is Scripture. God's Word. God's Word is the authority. All Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy says. And so for Christians, anything and everything in this world and in our lives is measured up against this authority, the truth of God as revealed in his word. And the truth of God is only the truth of God when, it is, when it's at 100%. As soon as you reject even a small part of it because you don't like it or whatever, 
You don't like that part, so you want to get rid of it. As soon as that happens, it's no longer the truth of God, and it's no longer the ultimate authority. Even if you accept 90%, 95% of what God reveals in Scripture, but you reject that 5%, that little bit that you don't like, as soon as you tamper with it, you may as well throw the whole thing out the window. And you say, well, what are you talking about? Isn't that a little extreme? Sure, the Bible has plenty of good things to say, plenty of things we can learn from, but we can't trust it fully, especially not today. You can't honestly expect me to take everything in the Bible, everything, there's so much in there. You can't expect me to take everything and actually like believe it literally, believe it absolutely, not in the world that we live in now, not with everything we know now. Well, the reality is that there are good, solid reasons to actually have that kind of confidence in God's word. The Bible can be trusted and believed as God's written word to us, all of it. We don't have the time today to unpack some of those Things, and, and I think that would be outside the scope of the text, actually. But I'd like to recommend to you a new documentary that came out this year. Uh, if, if you're someone who could use growth in this area, in this, in this area of your own confidence in the authority and trustworthiness of Scripture, check out the film, The God Who Speaks. The God Who Speaks. I watched it for free on Amazon Prime. I'm not sure if it's still available in that way. It's a fantastic documentary. It features uh, scholars like Don Carson, Kevin DeYoung, Alistair Begg, and Josh McDowell, just to name a few, a few of those more well-known names. Excellent work uh, in that film, uh, exploring the trustworthiness of, of the Bible, uh, you know, start to finish. The manuscripts that, that we have, the text we have today, trusting and having confidence that it's really God's written word. Paul had this high view of Scripture. He saw its authority and he submitted to it. Therefore, he was unwilling to tamper with it. But what happens when you do tamper with it? What happens when something in it just bugs you? You know, you don't like a certain teaching or a principle or a claim, whatever it is, but you, you know, you don't want to go out and reject the whole thing. You grew up with the Bible. You have great value. You hold great value in, in the Bible. You see some, some value in it at least, and you like to hold on to it. So you pick and choose. You tamper. And what's going on there? Well, what's going on is you're removing the Bible's authority. That's what you're doing. But that commitment to its authority doesn't just vanish. It doesn't go away. It gets misplaced. It gets redirected. An ultimate authority isn't optional. Human beings are naturally ultimate authority holders. Everyone relies on something to act as their ultimate authority, something to direct and determine what is true and what is right. And if you tamper with God's word, you're simply looking to something other than God's word to operate as your authority. I'll illustrate this real quick. Uh, you know, it, 
it can be uh, a challenge for Christians if, if you believe the Bible and you're asked to demonstrate why you believe the Bible is your authority and you say, well, you know, someone says to you, why do you believe the Bible's your authority? You know, you believe that's the ultimate authority for truth, for logic, reasoning, all of that. And you say, well, you see, the reason I believe that is, as you see here, in, as it says in 2 Timothy, what's going to happen? They're going to stop you and say, no, hold on a second. You're reasoning in a circle. I'm, I'm trying to challenge your ultimate authority. You can't just flip to a verse. Well, let's say you're talking to a rationalist, someone who says, I'm a rationalist. My, you know, I believe that uh, the highest authority is reason. You know, reason is the, the ultimate authority for determining what's true and what's right. So we must be very careful with how we use our reason. And you say, okay, that's your ultimate authority. Well, can you explain why? Why, why is that your ultimate authority? And then when they turn to give you a reason, what are they doing? They're flipping open their Bible. Do you see that? In other words, this, this way of kind of circular reasoning where we have to assume our ultimate authority without appealing to some other ultimate authority to justify it, it's not something we get to avoid. Everyone does it all the time. Christians too. And so when you reject the Bible's authority, you're just misplacing it and accepting some other kind of authority. Have you ever heard of the Thomas Jefferson Bible? Tom, maybe you haven't. Thomas Jefferson liked Jesus. He thought Jesus was a swell guy, someone we can learn a lot from. But he didn't like Jesus' claims to divinity. He didn't like Jesus' miracles. Jefferson was a deist and a naturalist, you see. Miracles don't happen. And Jesus was just a wise man, someone we can learn a lot from, nothing more. So, Jefferson literally took a razor and glue, and he actually cut out sections of the gospel accounts to make them more consistent with his worldview. You know, he loved things like the Sermon on the Mount, but he didn't like the feeding of the 5,000. He certainly didn't like when Jesus said things like, you know, hey, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Didn't like any of that, so he cut it out of the text. This is literally cutting and pasting a long time ago, long before it was control X and control V, if you know how computers work. He wanted Jesus without the claims to be God. He wanted Jesus without the miracles, this kind of sanitized, user-friendly Jesus, the kind of Jesus that a lot of people, frankly, are attracted to today. But you see what's happening here. As soon as Jefferson cut out his first word of the text, as soon as that first word was, was gone, so was its authority. As soon as you pick and choose what parts of Scripture to believe, it loses its authoritative status. And actually, you, yourself, essentially become the ultimate authority because you know better. You have some kind of superior knowledge and wisdom that you can decipher what's really true and valuable in Scripture and what's not. When God's word is tampered with, it is stripped of its authority, and the authority goes instead to the tamperer. Is that a word? It is today. Tamperer. Paul says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to place myself underneath the authority of God's word, not above it so that I supersede it. But what about those who may be struggling with this? 
What about those who, who have a genuine interest in trusting the Bible? You know, you want to trust the Bible. You want to believe in the Bible. But there really are just some things in it that honestly, you honestly have a hard time accepting. Just a question for you. Respectfully, is it possible that you're mistaken? Is it possible that you don't see everything completely clearly and that you might actually need correction in some areas? Whatever the issue is, whether it's some claim of Christ or an ethical teaching, lifestyle issues, whatever it is, are you willing to allow yourself to be challenged by Scripture? Tim Keller puts it like this. He has counsel for those in this, in this boat. Listen to what he says. If you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge or correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. What happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility or crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, by the way, only then will you know that you've gotten a hold of the real God and not a figment of your imagination. Keller says, an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. You see what he's saying? A Christian is somebody who is willing to admit, I don't have all the answers, and I don't have it all figured out, but I trust God's word. I have good reason to trust God's word. Not only that, but you cherish God's word. You hold it in this high regard. You submit yourself to its authority. That's what Paul had. That's the resolve Paul had that gave him the confidence to refuse to tamper with God's word. So that's the first one. But secondly, we must recognize spiritual blindness. Verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul is talking about a spiritual blindness, an inability to see. And as those who minister the gospel, we, we also must recognize the spiritual blindness. Why aren't people responding to the gospel? Have you tried articulating the truths of Jesus to someone in your life, you know, and you're just, you're trying to hope, you're hoping to persuade them, you're trying to be persuasive and winsome as you explain the truth of the gospel, and you try, and you try, and they just don't see it. And you start to wonder, you know, like, what am I doing wrong? How can I make this more clear? Why aren't they seeing this? And the answer, according to Paul, is this spiritual blindness. The problem is not in Paul's proclamation, but in the minds 
of those who reject it. Minds which have been blinded by the God of this world. And the God of this world, by the way, refers to Satan. First to the one who rules over this present age, or maybe it's better put, the one whom this age has made its God. And you see that theme elsewhere, places like John 12 and 1 John 5, that same idea. But now if you've experienced this, like Paul, the problem is not in your presentation. Now don't hear me wrong, there will always be ways we can improve our presentation. There will always be ways we can improve uh, how we communicate the gospel, how we articulate the truth of the gospel to our ever-changing culture. But the essential problem here isn't the gospel message or its proclamation, its presentation. It's the human mind that receives it. John Calvin put it like this, the blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clearness of the gospel, just as the sun is no less splendid, bright, because, because the blind do not perceive it. There is a blindness in the human mind that, apart from God's grace, prevents us from seeing clearly. And it's important for us to see how fundamental this blindness is. It gets to the core of our nature, of who we are and what we are as human beings. People are not spiritually blind because they choose to reject the gospel. Rather, they choose to reject the gospel because they're spiritually blind. It's very important to understand the difference there. Old Princeton theologian Charles Hodge says it like this, the blindness precedes the unbelief and is the cause of it. According to the Bible, human beings are not born as moral blank slates. I have people in my life who believe that human beings are born basically good in a kind of moral neutrality. And it's then various aspects of our upbringing or our environment that can begin to corrupt us and change us change us and, and change our habits and our behaviors. I see this tendency in myself, by the way, as someone who is attempting to parent young children. I go to great lengths to try to control the environment of my children, to shelter them to a degree from the outside world so that the evil won't get inside our house. So I care very much about who they talk to, who they spend time with, what they watch, what they hear, and so forth. And don't hear me wrong, all of that is good, appropriate, and healthy biblical parenting and can certainly help shape our children. But those methods cannot be seen as a way to completely keep the evil out. The newsflash from the Bible is, it's already in there. It was already in there from day one. This is why Jesus taught in Mark 7, evil doesn't come to us from the outside, as if we can somehow get infected with it. It doesn't come from our environment. Rather, it flows from within us. It flows from the heart. We come into this world already infected, with a mind already blinded, a will already rebellious against God. In sin did my mother conceive me, David writes in the psalm. The heart is desperately wicked and sick. Who can understand it? Says the prophet Jeremiah. 
Paul writes in Romans 3, there is no one that does good. No, not one. In Romans 8, Paul tells us that the natural mind is hostile to the law of God. It will not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. Every other religion teaches you how to earn your salvation, right? But Christianity says you can't earn your salvation because apart from God's grace, you can't even want it. That's what's going on here with this spiritual blindness. We must recognize spiritual blindness because it's a fundamental aspect of who we are as fallen people. It's directly linked to our nature as sinners. We are not sinners because we sinned. We sin because we're sinners by nature. Again, that's the important distinction. Ah, but what about free will, you might say? What about it? What do you mean by free will? The Bible never denies free will. If by free will we're talking about the ability we have to freely choose what we want. But the Bible does deny moral neutrality. Do you understand the difference? We might have free will, but we are not morally neutral. We might have the ability to freely choose what we want, but apart from God's grace changing us, we don't have the ability to freely choose to submit to God in all of life and live a life of righteousness instead of sin. You following me? Take a rabbit. Cute, cuddly little creatures like us. Take a rabbit and put before the rabbit two options for lunch. On the menu, we have a big, thick, juicy red steak or else a carrot. You put both those options before the rabbit. You've got the steak here and the carrot here, and you say, here you go, rabbit. You choose what you want for lunch, and what's he going to choose? The rabbit will freely choose the carrot every time. But you see, that choice is informed by the rabbit's nature. The rabbit can't want the steak. It's the same with us. We might have free will, but we freely choose according to our nature. And our nature, apart from God's grace, is sinful, rebellious, and blind. And our will is shaped by our nature. This is what the great reformer Martin Luther was getting at when he wrote on the bondage of the will. The bondage of the will. Paul says that unbelievers are spiritually blind, unable to see the light of the gospel. Well, so what can you do? What can you do with a friend who just isn't getting it even though you labor over your gospel presentation? Start by praying. The veil doesn't just lift by itself. It lifts with the miraculous and gracious work of God in the person's life. So pray. Pray that God would lift the veil so that they can see. That's, that's, what you, that's, that's where you start, at least. If you're a Christian, you knew that this happened to you. You know that at a certain time in your life, the veil was lifted. And all of a sudden, you could see what you couldn't see before. You could see the gospel. Pray that the same thing happens in others as you bring the gospel to them. 
And when that happens, when the veil is lifted, we are able to see, Paul says, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What does it mean to see the glory of Christ? Essentially, it it means to be saved. Charles Hodge offers an explanation of what is meant by the glory of Christ. It's a bit of a mouthful. So listen closely. The glory of Christ is the sum of all the divine and human excellence that is centered in his person. And it makes him the radiant point in the universe, the clearest manifestation of God to his creatures, the object of supreme admiration, adoration, and love by all intelligent beings, and especially his saints. That's what you see when the veil is lifted. And it is this glorious Christ with whom Christians must identify. And that'll take us to our final point this morning. Cherish God's word, recognize spiritual blindness, and then lastly, identify with Christ. Verses 5 and 6, Paul says, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. What are we? Servants, for Jesus' sake. Not ourselves, but Christ. For Paul and for all Christians, identifying with Christ means that you understand, you see, that this was never, for a moment, about you. It's about him. He's the hero. He's the focus. Paul doesn't want to talk about himself. He wants to talk about Christ. Christians are people who have been given this incredible gift, the gift of the veil of blindness being removed so that now the glory of Christ can be seen and understood. And when that happens, you embrace Christ as sovereign Lord and Savior. You submit to his lordship and you make your life's business about showing him and his glory to others. That's your new job. Kent Hughes writes, truly, no man can fancy himself great and at the same time declare that God is great. The proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord is the province of the humble alone. And N.T. Wright put it like this, the job of the Christian is to make Jesus known and then keep out of the way to make sure we don't get in the light. It's not about us. No self-promotion, no self-absorption. We've been bought with a price. We're not our own anymore. We belong to Christ, and we now live in Christ. And so it is he that should shine through us. We are signposts pointing to something great, something magnificent, something beautiful and glorious. We're no longer concerned with ourselves, with reputation, status, or whatever. Just Christ. That's why Paul says, what are we now? We're servants for Jesus' sake. Why? Because he's the one who saved us. He's the one who uh, rescued us. And because we've seen how beautiful and glorious he is. Look at verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Pay attention to that. 
John MacArthur writes, the God who created physical light, remember all the way, this is an echo, all the way back to the beginning of the story. Out of the chaos, out of the darkness, God speaks, let there be light. MacArthur says, the God who created physical light in the universe is the same God who must create supernatural light in the soul and usher believers from the kingdom of darkness to his kingdom of light. And that references Colossians 1.13. If you're a Christian, God has lit up your heart. He's caused you to see what you could not see on your own. He caused you to see. This is the great difference between the gospel that Paul presents and all other religions past and present, including the various versions of the gospel that his opponents were uh, putting forth as they accused him of those things. Uh, all other religions are chiefly about you. What you do, how you live, they're about you and your quest for salvation, but the gospel is about someone else. It's about Christ, what Christ has done, and how Christ has lived, and how he died, and, and he died in your place and rose again, all to accomplish salvation for you so that you could just receive it as a gift. That's why Paul is so direct over and over again, here and elsewhere, that this is about what God has done to you and in you to save you. God has shown in your hearts. God has given the light. It's the great difference between do versus done that we sometimes talk about. All other forms of religion are spelled D-O because they tell us we have to perform good works, we have to obey moral and religious laws in order to find God, you know, achieve forgiveness, peace, nirvana, whatever. But you'll never be sure you've done enough. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E because God sent his son to live on this earth and to live the life we should live and to die on the cross to pay the debt we should pay for the wrongs we've done. Buddha said, strive without ceasing. Jesus said, it is finished. When you understand this, when God lights up your heart and shows you the radiance of Christ, shows you uh, who he is, what he's done for you, and you embrace him with your life, then you become like Paul when he says, we don't proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ. There's a humility there. It's confidence in the person and work of Christ on your behalf, and that leads to a kind of confident humility. He is all you need. And so you're not afraid anymore of anything or anyone. You're not concerned with pushing your own agenda. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, as some in our culture may try to define it. It's not having a low view of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You just you find joy in getting out of the way so that the light of the glory of Christ can be clearly seen and you don't want to detract from it in any way. That is how Paul was able to minister with heart. It's how he was able to endure personal attacks and not lose heart, not lose focus. And so we, we must adopt these three things at least, as well, if we're to do the same.
in ministry and in life. Cherish God's word. Recognize spiritual blindness and identify with Christ. Would you stand? We'll close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we are weak. We are sinful. Even those of us who by your grace have had that veil lifted. We've seen the glory of Christ. We have a desire to obey. And yet we struggle. We struggle with residual sin, residual unbelief. We thank you for this amazing grace you've shown us in Christ. Not only did you change us, not only did you open our eyes to see the truth, those of us in Christ, you continue to work in our lives, in our hearts. And I pray that you would continue to remind us, even this morning, remind us of the truth that we have been justified, declared righteous by you, by faith, by your grace, because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so that we, we don't need to have any fear anymore. We don't need to have any worry. We don't need to have any guilt of, uh, or fear of punishment anymore because the sins we've committed, the sins we commit today and the sins we will commit tomorrow have all been taken care of. Christ on the cross paid it all. Allow that gospel to continue changing us so that we live lives today that reflect the rescue that we've received from Christ. Help us to have resolve as we cherish your word, as we hold out scripture as our authority, even when it is challenging in a culture that wars against it. Help us to uh, see our, our need for you to open the eyes of people just like you've done with ourselves. Help us to recognize the spiritual blindness all around us and to be on our knees in prayer. And help us to continue to identify with Christ, not with ourselves, not with any kind of, any kind of righteousness that we can somehow produce ourselves or claim that we have, not clinging to our good works, not identifying with our status in this world, but identifying only with Christ, who is our life now. Help that to be so real in us that the outside world cannot ignore the truth and cannot ignore the hope that, that we've been given in Christ. Help us as a church to do this well, to do this in a way that honors you, and to hold each other up and accountable as we walk through life together. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.